Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Hey everybody, Alan Pence here. I thought I'd do a little bit of a reflection episode since I started this podcast earlier this year in September and uh, learned a lot, talked to a lot of people about AI and where it's going. So I thought I'd share a few of those as we're coming into the end of the year here. First, obviously, is just the incredible amount of creativity, innovation, and change happening in the AI space. That's, I'm sure every single person listening to this knows quite a bit about that from seeing the news and hearing from friends and colleagues. And so that's quite obvious. But it's really struck me interviewing a variety of different people how little we actually know what this technology is and where it's going and how quickly it changes day to day. So over the last year, we've seen multiple companies start and we've seen OpenAI or Google do an update and wipe out the business plan for thousands of companies in a one fell swoop. We saw the crazy disruptions on the OpenAI board. We saw the beginnings of these technologies being integrated into our day-to-day lives through the productivity suites of both Google and Microsoft. And I think we see an emerging war amongst probably three or four major players in this field, that being OpenAI and Microsoft. To some extent, Microsoft and OpenAI are on different trajectories, but for right now, sort of united. Google trying to play catch up here. Then we are getting our first reviews of Gemini, their new model coming in, which seem a little underwhelming from what I've read. I have not used the model to date, but we'll see how that goes. But I think Google is a major player here, no matter what, given their machine learning, AI talents, and the wealth of data they have from things like YouTube. I just can't believe they're not going to be able to stay at parity or leapfrog at some point. Then we've seen the rise in Europe of Mistral, a new service I have not used as well. So it's interesting to see a European player, which will kind of address my reflection on the regulatory part of this. So interesting to see that. And then I think the other real contender here is the open source movement driven largely by Meta, Facebook, and their Llama model. So certainly not quite as capable at this point, but the fact that it's open source has put a dynamic new player into the ecosystem that I think is going to make a major impact going forward. So some of the things to follow up on that, really thinking about the regulatory side. So that's been a big chunk of what we've been talking about on the podcast. In some ways, I find that disappointing. I think this is a new technology. We know very little about it. We don't really know the contours and shapes of it, its capabilities, where it's going. Obviously, by seeing people's business models get wiped out. And if they could have planned that out, I'm sure they wouldn't have done it. So 
I'm a little alarmed at the pace with which regulation has become a key topic in this field. My personal preference is, you know, as probably could tell if you listen to the podcast, I think we should let the technology play out for a period of time. I do think there's a role for regulation long term, particularly if we have concerns about AI being an existential threat. But I think that the time for that regulation has not yet come. I also think we're seeing quite a bit of open source work where the effort to regulate is probably not going to yield the results that regulators want. So for two reasons. One is, you know, that open source technology allows pretty much anyone to use the technology and maybe not under the supervision of the regulators and they can use it in different countries where those regulators don't have any reach. I think we're in a little bit of a space here where that's not 100% true given the need for processing power. So I think the need for GPUs, which are the chips that drive AI, has limited the number of players who can play at the top end of AI. And I think that to some extent, that's probably going to be true going forward. So that is a plus for the regulators. And those people tend to be in Western, people have access to those GPUs, tend to be in Western countries with strong regulatory systems. So I do think for the time being, the regulators do have a case that they can kind of control the path of AI. But I think as the technology develops, clearly the models are moving more and more toward getting increasingly sophisticated using less computing power, right? So I think that means in the long term that capabilities you might consider dangerous will be available to people with a lot less processing power and in many different countries, right? So it's kind of a losing game in the long run, although I do think the regulators have some capability in the short term. I've been struck by the differences in the regulatory approaches across the world. And that's one thing I really loved about the podcast so far is we've had people, you know, someone in India, she was not Indian, but in India working on AI stuff. We've had someone from Moldova. We've had multiple people from parts of the EU in addition to the United States. So I'd like to keep that going and even expand to other countries. But what I really learned is that each country is going to have its own strategy or each block of countries is going to have its own strategy. So you're seeing, obviously, the EU being out in front on regulation, although this is an interesting place to highlight. So with the rise of Mistral, which is a French company, the movement that the EU very quickly, I think, kind of just anecdotally from my sense, was really pushed hard by the Germans to regulate AI with EU AI legislation that's currently under consideration. That looked like it was a freight train going down the track to get implemented very quickly. And France has thrown a little bit of a roadblock on, uh, I guess I'm mixing my metaphors there, but France, because they have a national champion and Mistral is like, oh, wait, all of a sudden, we're not so sure about all this regulation. So to me, that reveals some of the tensions there that are, you know, the United States and China have really led the last few waves of innovation when you think the last real European contender was in mobile, Nokia. They've been wiped out. But in the cloud revolution of 2010 on, there hasn't been any European player of any size. 
So it became, I think, things like their GDPR and other data regulation, although definitely based in European tradition and law, were a lot easier to get passed because they had no companies that were going to be hurt. So in some ways, they were like, hey, it's fine to tax U.S. companies. We don't really care about that because we don't have our own people to care about. It was very revealing that they were going down the same road with AI, but as soon as France has an alternative, well, I'm not sure we want to regulate this. So I do think there's a little bit of self-interested regulatory approaches going on there. But then, you know, in contrast, you see a place like India where some of the indications we were getting in the interviews we did is it's much more of an open, much more similar to the U.S. without a lot of talk about regulation. We and quite frankly, in the U.S., we have had quite a bit of talk about regulation. So it's interesting to see India kind of take that stance. And I think in a world where if we follow the EU model and regulate to that extent, I think it does create a competitive advantage for countries like India who have the tech talent, can marshal the resources and say, we're not going to follow this restrictive regulatory path. So I think that's definitely a path open to countries going forward. China, you know, is a little bit more of a black box for us. I'm not sure we're really going to get a lot of Chinese AI experts on here, but we'll see. I think China has AI is sort of like a blessing and a curse for them. So obviously they can use data without privacy protections that we would insist on, and at least in the EU and to some extent in America. And that's a big advantage. They could use that. But I think it's also... The containing of AI, the need to keep it from hurting the current government is a serious limitation to their ability to use it effectively and to experiment with it. So I think the level of control they're going to have to exert to make sure that they don't unleash something that could overturn the government is probably going to result in China lagging. That's my take. I mean, I think you see the current crackdown that although it seems like it's lessened, still hasn't really stopped on leading tech companies. And China is sort of an indication of that to me. If I were Alibaba or Tencent or you know companies of that Meituan, I'd be pretty, pretty leery of developing my own independent AI models, getting the government suspicious of what we're doing. So obviously some advantages there for China, but it does strike me that they have a lot of risk that they perceive out of the technology. But again, black box, so that's just complete speculation. And then here in the US, I think we are in a little bit of a paralysis, um, which to me is probably pretty good. So I think the Biden administration tried to get out in front with their executive order on AI. I think a lot of good stuff in that, right? So I think first of all, getting departments to really think about AI, hey, you need a chief AI officer, central hub to coordinate efforts, encouraging experimentation, focusing on skills in the workforce of the federal workforce. Those are all huge bennies. I, I think that's really going to yield a lot for the country. But, you know, on the other side, there's some concerning things in there. The definition of AI itself in the executive order is problematic. I mean, from my take, basically an Excel spreadsheet with a pivot table constitutes AI under the definition of the executive order. And some of the calls, I mean, at this point, these are voluntary, but I know I've been working with the federal government for 30 years. I now have voluntary turns into involuntary pretty quickly. 
So a voluntary calls for releasing methods of training and testing and trying to make a lot of that transparent. I think there might be a role for that at some point. I'm not saying that that's completely ridiculous, but I do think at this point, trying to establish standards around that seems very premature to me. And the way things happen is, yes, it's voluntary, but then all of a sudden, if you deviate from your voluntary standard that you've set, then you're unleashing regulatory attention, congressional hearings. So that feels very dangerous to me. I definitely want to urge the administration and policymakers in the United States to think long and hard before they take steps that are going to shape this technology for the years to come. I mean, my take is, look, when personal computers came out, there were multiple books about the doom that that was going to cause for the world. That seems ridiculous today, but that was, in fact, a worry that many people had. Now, certainly it wasn't the same level of impact right away, so it didn't get the same attention that AI is getting now. But I do think we have to look at those past examples and see what happened. We did not need a regulatory apparatus around personal computers. Dell did not need to check in its models for developing new computers when Michael Dell was building laptops or computers and whatever he was doing in his dorm room at UT. So I think we should take a similar hands-off approach here with AI for the time being. The other concerning things I see is a real focus on what elite concerns are around misinformation, disinformation. I certainly think this has been a political battle in amongst our political elites, you see it, you know, Twitter and Elon and another social media and mixed up in the Trump and all that kind of nonsense. So I really urge us not to take our current elite political battles into this new technology and potentially destroy our innovation in this new technology because we're fighting these, quite frankly, silly battles in our national dialogue. So that's a road I really hope we don't go down. Because many of the problems that people are asserting are a problem with AI are just problems with the internet in general. So I view it as if you're talking about extensive AI regulation today, you're basically saying, I want to regulate all of technology. And what I worry most about is that we get rid of this concept of permissionless innovation. So that's a kind of a term people have come up with for the fact that there's anyone can go out and start experimenting with stuff and come up with a new startup or a new app or a new whatever. And they don't have to go check with somebody and ask permission or say, mother, may I? And that's a crucial, crucial part of American innovation that's driven our growth and our prosperity for hundreds of years. So to say that we want to regulate that is kind of frightening to me. And I think we need to be really serious about thinking about when and how we need to do that. Because if we end permissionless innovation, we're, we're looking toward a bleaker future with a lot less growth and prosperity for the world, quite frankly. I mean, I think about, I've used this example on a couple of the podcasts, like if we had the kind of regulation that we're talking about, risk-based regulation, I don't think we'd have Gmail today. Because look, you could use Gmail. I mean, do your risk profile, right? Oh, well, it has a lot of storage and you can attach big files so someone could send nuclear bomb plans over Gmail. So let's put it in a regulatory environment where we have to go ask the government 
to approve our model or any changes we're going to make to it of our Gmail app. And then we got Microsoft sitting on the other side, lobbying senators and the regulatory folks that Gmail is going to be dangerous and it's going to destroy thousands of jobs, right? So like that is clearly what would happen. And I don't even think that's exaggerated at all. And so let's make sure we don't do that in this country because my biggest concern is I do think we're facing across the Western world, we are facing a demographic issue and not just the Western world, Asia as well, where we have collapsing population statistics. Now, extent to which that continues, I don't know. I'm not a demographer. Most demographers made the wrong call anyway, so who knows what they think is right or not. But certainly seems like we're facing a lot fewer people in the future, and that's people's choice. I'm not going to tell them whether to have kids or not. There are definitely major downsides to a world in which we have a shrinking population. And I would just cite the fact that growth and progress are really made up of two things. And it's demographics, people, plus innovation, right? And productivity gains from the innovation. So if we eliminate one half of that equation, I was just hearing someone talk about this yesterday, I can't remember, so forgive me for not citing you. If we get rid of half of that equation, we really threaten the ability of the species to continue to innovate. And if you look at what has caused the increase in lifespans, the increase in living standards, the reduction of poverty, the reduction of infant mortality, premature death, all these things, it's all been innovation driven by the Industrial Revolution. And we've had growing populations and growing innovation ever since that happened in whatever, late 1700s. So if we threaten half of that equation with demographics, then we are going to need a lot more from the innovation and productivity side. And I see regulation as 100% killing the other half of that equation. So I don't think it's in the regulator's purview to doom future humans to slow growth, less lower living standards, less shorter lives. And I think that's what's at stake here. And I think we need to be 100% careful that we don't tie our hands in the future from realizing the benefits of AI. Now, I'm certainly on the one extreme side. I believe we should be much more hands off. But I will caveat it and say I do think that there are concerns and we should monitor them. So I think an investment, particularly from the federal government, into let's really take a look at the existential risks of AI. I think, to be honest, that's the most pressing concern. I'm really too worried about disinformation or misinformation. I think those are all things that AI can fix. It creates the problem and it can fix the problem, right? But I don't understand the existential threats. I mean, obviously, some people lay them out, and we had a great interview with somebody in the robotics field who's bringing AI and robotics together. I mean, this is obviously everyone can think about their worry about Terminators coming down and killing humans. But on the other hand, what they're doing right now is helping people in assisted living facilities take their medication on time and feel good about what they're doing. So I'm not seeing the end of civilization and that approach. But certainly there are things to worry about. And I think it's really appropriate for us to talk about 
the federal government making some pretty massive investments in understanding those threats and how to counter them. And the reality is, of, like I said, as these models become more efficient, can run on cheaper, easier to access hardware, really, we're not going to be able to keep these tools out of the hands of mal actors and others. So some people relate it to the nuclear kind of situation. I mean, I guess for me, I don't really see nuclear getting to a point, again, not a nuclear expert. So I know there's small reactors and all this stuff, but it does seem to me it takes a level of sophistication. It takes uranium, which is hard to mine, and it takes a set of resources that makes it a little more controllable by a central authority. And it doesn't have the productivity curve, like the Moore's law of improving performance, doubling every 18 months. So it does feel like AI has that. It's software and it's based on compute. So it does feel like it will benefit from this Moore's law and become more and more efficient and more and more effective, right? So it won't lend itself to the control that nuclear does. So I do think that inevitably we're facing, to be honest, there are open source models out there that are forking off and they're becoming their own thing and we can't control that. And so as the capabilities get better, there's nothing preventing non-state, other countries, non-state actors, other countries from using those models. And as the compute gets more efficient, becoming more and more capable. So I do think we just have to face the reality that the risks of AI are already out there and we should spend a lot of resources focusing on countering those risks and understanding them. But my thing is, if we regulate here now, we're probably killing most of the benefits of AI without actually dealing with any of those problems because we don't even know what they are yet. And having Microsoft check models in for the government is not going to stop non-state actors from using Llama version, blah, 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 with their new GPUs that are more efficient from launching some AI attack, right? So I think most of the regulatory talk is pretty much misguided at this point. And then just lastly, focusing on the great part, which is the emergent. And this is where I love to take the podcast going forward more and more on what are going to be the benefits for government from using AI. And like we said, the technological progress has been pretty astounding and new things come out all the time. But it does seem like some of my last interviews with Alex Worth and I'm doing a couple more in the new year with the ability of AI to inform policymaking strikes me as one of the most interesting and profound things we're going to see. The level of information and data we'll be able to use to better target policy, I think it's going to be transformational. And a couple of ideas we talked about that I hadn't really heard in the discourse yet, or we could even have avatars that represent different stakeholders in the system. So if you're regulating or looking at policy on Medicare or something, you could have, hey, here's an avatar that represents this kind of Medicare group. This represents hospitals. This represents doctors. This represents other stakeholders in that system. And you can continually refine those stakeholders with input from the stakeholders. So to the point where you could target policy and then you'd have a bunch of data about what the potential outcomes of this policy was, you know, that the stakeholders were feeding back against. And by the time you got to some kind of comment period on a regulation or even by the time Congress is actually going to legislate something, you would have 
something that was thousands of percent more targeted and effective for all the groups together than you ever would have had through the process we're running now. Now that obviously some people might be frightened by the idea that these avatars could go out and represent them without them knowing. But I do think we can do 98% of the work up front and then have humans in the loop at the end where they verify and make sure that that's what they really wanted, right? And then teach the model again so it gets better. I think these kinds of things, you know, taking a look at like, hey, we've been doing this X grant policy, like transportation, like building roads for 60, 70 years. What have we learned? Like, how do we get it so that every dollar we spend gets us? $10 of benefit rather than two. I think that those capabilities within the government are going to completely revolutionize how we think about policymaking. And that's the part where I'd really like to focus going forward is these kind of benefits. Of course, we'll continue to talk about the regulatory side. I think there's a lot there that we need to know about. But I'd really like to get into these benefits because I think it's going to be pretty exciting. And that's where I don't sense enough activity. I think there are some departments, we're going to have some people hopefully from DOD on in the new year, and they've been definitely a leader on AI, so salute them for that. But a lot of other departments are just, you know, the wheels are just starting to turn. So if you look at your company and ChatGPT has been out for a year now and just over, and even at companies I know that I'm involved in, you don't really see it day to day. Some people are experimenting. If you think about the government sort of like, one step behind that. So hopefully over this year, we're going to start seeing some major initiatives. We're going to start seeing those AI officers get appointed in each department. So I'm looking forward to a bunch of new activity and a bunch of talk about what AI can do, not just what it threatens to do. So with that, wish everybody a great new year and we'll be back with some interviews in January. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. AI Government and the Future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, Thanks for listening.